Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 133, The Scott Cast, part 10. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Dion, Paul, and John for joining up already. All right, so next week, we'll be returning to the Anglo-Saxon territories and to the troubles that the lines of Penda and Ida were causing. But for today, we're talking about Scotland. And to start with, we have nine praise poems that tell us of a mighty king of Regid named Urien, who reigned in the 580s and 590s. And Urien was no slouch, and from the records, it appears that his kingdom stretched all the way to the Solway, and he was also given the title of Defender of Aeon, which was Ayrshire. So we're talking about a king who controlled an enormous stretch of land that included territories on both sides of the wall. Now his name itself, Urien, is a rather glamorous name and was probably intended to enhance his prestige. That's because Urien is a derivation of Erbgen, which means born of the city, which some have taken to mean that he was probably born in Carlisle, as his power base appears to have been centered there though it is possible that he was born in York. Either way, his name indicated his urban status. And it might have even called back to memories of Rome, as Carlisle was built on an old Roman fort. But even if there weren't any implications of the old Roman past, being associated with the city would have carried with it a lot of weight. The cities, such as Carlisle, were hubs of trade in the north. And trade was a key factor of aristocratic life. And we've seen evidence that they were trading with Gaul as well as the Rhineland, and they were importing goods such as wine, spices, salt, and of course, inks to be used at the monastery at Iona. And there would have been a great need for ink. They were producing a lot of work. And for a moment, consider the scope of what was occurring at the monasteries at Iona and Monk Wearmouth. They were the great repositories of knowledge for the region. And taking it in context, what they were holding was impossibly vast. Their libraries allowed a dominant to discuss how to visit holy sites in the East, even though he had never even visited them. Now, if a dominant lived today and he wanted to write something like that, he would have had no trouble. It really wouldn't have been that big of a deal. All he would have needed to do is probably just do a few web searches. But back then, the fact that he had that much information at his fingertips is honestly staggering, and it shows us the sophistication of what was occurring in Scotland. Anyway, the point I'm driving at is that the cities were the hub of aristocratic life, as well as a key link to the continent for the learned holy men. So Urien having his name tied to something like that could have only enhanced his status. And getting back to the nine praise poems, it's there that we learn that while Pickland was having a number of fights to unify the region, down in the south, the British kingdoms and the Anglian kingdoms in Northumbria were getting into more than a few scuffles. Things really started to pick up towards the end of the 6th century, in 573, so about 30 years after Ida first burst onto the scene. And that's when the kings of York rode out and attacked King Gwenthalau of Carlisle. 
and they defeated him at Arthuret so thoroughly that we're told that his bard, Myrthen, went insane and fled into the forest of Kelidon. And some argue that he then became the origin for the mythic wizard, Merlin. But neat little myths aside, the really important part of this is that the defeat opened the way for Urien's rise in politics. And so sometime after the, well, let's call it what it was, slaughter, he became the Lord of Lugavalium, the Lord of Carlisle. And we're told that he and his warbands would travel far to the north on cattle raids. But really, it was in the east, in the Northumbrian territories, where Urien would find his most famous battles. Now, as we discussed in the main podcast, Bernicia was an interesting blend of Celtic and Anglo-Saxon cultures. But its multi-ethnic origins really don't seem to have mattered all that much to Urien. What mattered to Urien, it seems, was that they were a challenge to his power. And so sometime in the 580s, he struck, and he butchered the forces of Bernicia, as well as their king, Aethelric. This was a big deal for King Urien, because it demonstrated to the other kings of the area that those Germanic kingdoms could be defeated. So he soon formed a coalition of British kingdoms. And King Ridderken of Strathclyde, King Morgant of Godothan, Gwalach of Lennox, King Aidan MacGabran of Dalriada, sometimes referred to as Argyll, and King Fiachna of Ulster, all decided to join him. This was a massive army that consisted of warriors from both sides of the wall as well as from across the Irish Sea. And the Brandisians could do little to stop them. And they stormed Bamborough and forced the remnants of the Brandisian army and nobility to seek refuge at Lindisfarne. This was going really well. Well, it was until King Morgant of Godothan, out of jealousy, arranged for the assassination of Urien. Damn it, they were so close. So yeah, things were getting rowdy. And this story shows us that it wasn't just the British kingdom south of the wall like Regid, but also some of Pictland was also getting into the mix and affecting Northumbrian politics. And that isn't the only time that we hear of Scottish kingdoms getting involved in warfare south of the wall. In the epic known as Egadothan, we read of a massive raid into the Anglian kingdoms led by Irfai, Lord of Aiden, what we now know as Edinburgh. Irfai is an interesting name, and it only gets more interesting when you hear his full name. Irfai, son of Golistan. Golistan was almost certainly a Celtic understanding of the Germanic name, Wolfstan. So what on earth was going on there? You have the son of someone with a Germanic name as the head of an army of Britons. So it makes you wonder, was Irfai's father from Deira, or maybe Bernicia? I mean, it isn't out of the question, since the Pictish tribes would trace royal blood on the female line, so having a foreign father wouldn't really remove the possibility to have a claim to the throne. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's also possible that he just rose through the ranks through his own military prowess. But you do have to wonder, was Irfai a second-generation immigrant? You know? But whatever the case... Now he was ruling over Edinburgh, and he was at the head of a tremendously large multi-kingdom affair. Irfai had warriors from Elmet, Aaron, Pictland, and Gwyneth, all under his command. And we're told that he brought a huge cavalry force down to Catterick, 
in the kingdom of Deira. And there, uh, they were almost completely wiped out by the Deira infantry. It was a disastrous loss for the Britons. But what I want to focus upon is not that battle, because that would be actually a rather short and dry discussion. But rather, what I'd like to talk about is what the poem tells us about the people during this era. The thing is that there's just so much more in Igadothan than just war. For example, it's there that we hear about how the conversions that we learned about last week impacted the population at large and how they viewed themselves. For example, the writer tells us of how Lord Irfai and the other converted kingdoms called themselves Ebedeth, the baptized. Meanwhile, they spoke of the Anglian kingdoms to the south as heathens. Something that's quite interesting here is how this raid is written about. See, typically, when we read about the Picts, they tend to be portrayed as a group of savages, right? Just as wild barbarians that even the Romans couldn't tame. But when we look at Igadothin, it's with a different tone. The poem is telling us about the civilized Britons fighting against the godless English savages. I mean, when you think about it, they very well might have viewed themselves as the last vestiges of Rome. They had holy men who could read and write in Latin. The center of their world was a holy city and the bishop who resided there. And their society was heavily organized, especially religiously. It sounds a lot like Rome, doesn't it? Now, you might remember how during the conversion period of the English territories, it wasn't a massive monolithic movement. There were holdouts, especially in the rural areas. And at first, it was mostly centered upon the aristocracy in England. And it sounds like that was also the case in Pictland as well. And it makes sense, after all, since big religious wars tend to be the concern of those who have the time to focus upon them. Most of the rest of the people, however, would be too busy focusing upon getting their basic needs met. When you're worrying about starvation, God might have to wait. So that is a possible reason for the resistance in the rural areas. Another interpretation for the resistance could be that due to their dire situations, the gods were even more important to them, and they didn't want to run the risk of angering those gods who had served them really well for generations, and then possibly dying of famine as a result. But whatever the case, it looks like religion in the north, much like in the south, was slow to spread into the rural areas. And when we look at one version of Igadothan, we do get a sense of the rural focus of daily life about 1,400 years ago. There we find a song sung by a woman to her son that sounds like it was straight out of the prehistoric era, without a hint of the growing focus of Christianity in the north. Dinogad's speckled petticoat was made of skins of speckled stoat. Whip, whip, whip along. Eight times we'll sing the song, When your father hunted the land, Spear on shoulder, club in hand, Thus his speedy dogs he'd teach, Gif, gaff, catcher, catcher, fetch. In his coracle he'd slay, Fish as a lion does its prey. When your father went to the moor, He'd bring back heads of stag, fawn, boar, The speckled grouse's head from the mountain, Fish's heads from the falls of oak fountain, Whatever your father struck with his spear, Wild pig, wild cat, fox from its lair, Unless it had wings, it would never get clear. Isn't that amazing? 
right in the middle of an epic poem that's mostly concerned with war and feasting and battle and kings. Here we have a little song that gives us a sense of what life was like for the average British family. They're just a normal hunting family. And you can absolutely imagine a mother singing this to her child while the father was out catching their next meal. And so, among all the clatter and exaggerations that naturally come with this sort of poem, here we have something soft and humble and stunningly genuine. This is British history. But we have a timeline that we need to cover. So where were we on that? Well, we're at last to the era of Aethelfrith. And as you might remember, he had quite an impact upon the British kingdoms that he was neighboring with, including those north of the Wall. He was a true descendant of Ida, which carried with it a lust for battle, a penchant for short lifespans, and an incredibly strong desire to extend his power into the north. And I'm sure you can guess what will come next. Yep, war. The thing is that there were people in the north, people who we've been talking about for the last several weeks, and those people were not entirely excited about the prospect of serving a king of Bernicia. Moreover, they had a strong tradition of traveling south and nicking everything that wasn't nailed down, and I doubt they saw any reason for why that should stop. So, at around 603, or maybe 600 if we're going by the Irish annals, we're told that King Aidan MacGabran of Dalriada and his allies went raiding into the south, like you do. And there, at Degsistan, he encountered King Aethelfrith of Bernicia. Now, you've already heard about King Aidan because he was part of King Urien's ill-fated attack. But something that I didn't mention is that Aidan was actually ordained as overking of Dalriada by St. Columba himself back in 573. And then after that, he spent 13 years fighting with the Picts in the north, and his warbands went as far north as Orkney. So this wasn't his first rodeo. However, it was his first fight with Aethelfrith, and Aethelfrith was not your average king. Now, we don't know a tremendous amount about this battle. But we are told that Aidan was at the head of a vast army of Britons. And you would think that's a good thing. But it isn't necessarily. See, the thing is, that while studying Scottish history, a curious trend starts to appear. If the forces of Scotland outnumber their opponents, they won't do all that well. In general, the Scots only did well when they were the underdogs. And they were not the underdogs in this fight. Not by a long shot. And so, once again, that weird trend of Scottish military history continued, and King Aethelfrith defeated the forces of Aidan. The victory was so intense, in fact, that it would be quite some time before the record would mention any conflicts between Northumbria and those who lived beyond the Wall. It seems like they just had enough. And soon thereafter, Aethelfrith turned his attention to Deira, and thus he began his long-standing conflict with Edwin. As you remember, eventually Edwin of Deira defeated Aethelfrith and became the king of Northumbria. And Aethelfrith's sons fled into exile. And those sons, Ainfrith, Oswald, who was about 13, and Oswiu, who was probably about 5, would spend the next 17 years of their lives among the Picts and the Scots, something that would undoubtedly change the course of history in the north. And as for Edwin, he became the new Bretwalda, 
and it shouldn't surprise you that he was a supremely powerful king. Of particular interest to us is that he exercised that power not just in the south, but also to the north. And by 631, which was the same year that Edwin was killed in battle, the lordship of Aiden, modern-day Edinburgh, had come under Bernician control. The Northumbrians were on the move. And think about what was going on here. Northumbria was growing into a major power in English politics. It was incredibly formidable, that's no secret. And to its northern border were the Pictish territories. In fact, if they looked across the Firth of Forth, they could see each other's territories. And as we've been learning in this series, the Picts were no slouches either. So how did these two people treat each other? What was their relationship? Well, according to Bede, King Oswald of Northumbria, quote, brought under his scepter all the peoples and provinces of Britain speaking the four languages, British, Pictish, Irish, and English, end quote. And we're told that Oswiu, quote, subjected most of the Picts to English rule, end quote. So we have the two brothers, who were back-to-back -back kings of Northumbria, extending their power to the north, at least according to Bede. But naturally, we do have to keep in mind who's telling us this. I mean, Bede's account certainly has a degree of pro-Northumbria bias. And based upon how difficult things were just between Mercia and Northumbria, I find it really unlikely that Northumbria was able to extend its overlordship over basically all of the British Isles. I mean, Bede has him also going and extending his power over Ireland. That seems nuts. But it does seem like Northumbria was exercising some amount of control over Aiden, which was modern-day Edinburgh. And by 641, it does look like Oswald took control of Stirling Castle Rock. So Northumbria was stretching its power into the north, and Godothan was steadily losing ground. But something interesting to note here is that if there was an overlordship over the Pictish territories, it seems to have been mostly bloodless. With the exception of the Battle of Degsistan, we just aren't reading of conflicts between the Pictish kingdoms and Northumbria. Now granted, most of the chronicles only seem to bother including battles when they had some sort of political or social significance. There very well could have been skirmishes and fights that occurred in the interim, maybe random warbands getting into scuffles but without any shifts in power or notable deaths, but from the context of the record, it seems like for the most part, those fights would be ignored unless something big happened, like the death of a king or the loss of territory. For example, we only hear about the big highlights of Penda's attacks, despite the implication in Bede's account that there were many other, quote, savage and intolerable attacks, end quote. And that seems pretty likely. I mean, honestly, do you think that Penda only fought a few battles? That doesn't seem like the Penda we've come to know and love. So we can be relatively sure that we're just getting the Cliff's Notes version of what battles were actually taking place. So yeah, there very well might have been some fighting between the Picts and the Northumbrians, but it didn't get included because it really didn't matter all that much. But still, it is rather telling that there's silence in the record regarding conflicts between Northumbria and Pictland. And we also have the fact that we know of five Pictish kings during the reigns of Oswiu and Oswald. And as far as we know, none of them died in battle. And actually, King Talorgan of Pictland was the son of Ainfreth, who was the oldest son of Aethelfrith. So they even had a family connection to the Picts. 
And while Oswiu was totally happy to fight family members, Oswald doesn't appear to have been, so that could have been part of it as well. Something else interesting is that while there were other fights recorded in the Irish Annals regarding other people, conflicts between the Northumbrians and the Picts were markedly absent. The only fight that might have included the Northumbrians was the Siege of Edinburgh in 638, and that was the last stronghold of the Votadini. And in the account, we're told of the heroes of Egadothan marching out to meet their doom, storming the Roman fort at Cataric. But that's the only account, and it's not all that reliable. So the point is, we're seeing a rather deafening silence on the issue of Northumbrian military intervention in southern Pictland. But maybe they didn't need it to establish overlordship. Maybe the southern Picts were already battle-weary. The Scots of Dalriada, who largely dominated the politics of southern Pickland, had been there since around 500. And like their northern neighbors, they had been unifying. They began as at least three tribes, with the kin of Gabran, who held Kintyre and the lands along the edge of Strathclyde, enjoying exclusive overking status during most of the 6th and 7th centuries, which of course was highlighted when Aidan MacGabran was ordained by Columba. But despite the unity of southern Pickland, Northern Pickland, the kingdoms of Ireland and Strathclyde, were still threats to their power. And much like the line of Ida, the line of Gabran appears to have sought total hegemonic domination of their neighbors. And that expansionist attitude led to a series of conflicts in Northern Pickland as well as in Ireland. And it actually went well at first. But things started to turn against Dalriada. And in the record, we see evidence of a series of crushing defeats from both their Irish and Pictish rivals. And the losses were so bad that they eventually reached a point where King Domnall, the grandson of Aidan, was killed in battle with the Britons at Strathclyde in 642. And that changed everything. Suddenly it wasn't Dalriada that was the power in southern Scotland, but rather it was Strathclyde. Scottish politics changed radically that day. But you might have noticed that throughout all of that jockeying for power and conflict, we still heard relatively little of Northumbrian conquests into the north. So we can guess that the overlordship mentioned by Bede probably didn't come about as the result of conquest. But perhaps, much like Oswiu seems to have tried to secure peace with Regid through his marriage to Rimeleth, maybe the Northumbrians were seeking political rather than military solutions with their British neighbors. And actually, that tactic seems quite apparent when we look at the issue of religion. As you might remember, early in its Christian history, the kings of Bernicia and Northumbria were allied not with Rome, but with Iona. And it wasn't until the reign of Oswiu, due to the intervention of Rome as well as Canterbury, that those ties were finally broken. And actually, following the Synod of Whitby, where those ties were formally broken, the abbot who was so influential with the proceedings, Abbot Wilfred, began to claim that he wasn't just the Bishop of Northumbria, but he was also the Bishop of Pictland, which again further cements this impression of a Northumbrian push ever farther north. And it is supported by the takeover and consolidation of Godothan and Manau. But yeah, they had religious ties. Maybe they didn't need to fight. And it does look like Northumbria was quite involved in the north, despite the lack of record of battles. 
And then, King Oswiu died. And things in the north changed rapidly. In Pictland, they had been ruled by King Drest, who was in Oswiu's pocket. But it didn't take long following Oswiu's death for the Picts to remove Drest from office and select a new king. And interestingly, they chose Bridie Matt Billy, the son of the king of Strathclyde. Again, we're seeing that Strathclyde was becoming the dominant force in the north. But that aside, it still does seem a bit strange on first glance that the Picts would elect someone from outside of Pictland to rule. But keep in mind the political realities of the time. Due to years of intermarriages between the northern dynasties and their close diplomatic relationships, Bridie actually had a legitimate claim to the Pictish throne. So the Picts seem to have been totally satisfied with the selection of an overking. The Northumbrians, on the other hand, seem to have been a bit grouchy that their puppet king was set aside. And so the new king of Northumbria, King Egfrith, who was Oswiu's son, immediately gathered his warbands and marched upon King Bridie of Pictland. And there, in 672, somewhere between the rivers of Caron and Avon, the two armies met. And the Pictish army was slaughtered. But despite that devastating loss, Bridie remained king. And warbands continued to come to his aid and support his claim. This battle was far from over. Now, one final thing I'd like to tell you about is regarding a little-known but fascinating source that was put together right at about this point in time. So here we are, about 400 years before the Doomsday Book, in the middle of the 7th century, and we have a record known as the History of the Men of Alba. And much like the Doomsday Book, it included a sort of census. In this case, it was focused upon Argyll, which we also know as Dalriada. And there, we learn about the size of their communities. And we also learn about how things were organized on a kin level. For example, 430 houses were listed as belonging to the kindred of Angus on Isla. 420 houses to the kindred of Lorne in Lorne and Appen. And 560 to the kindred of Gabron in Kintyre. Now, why compile a census like that? Well, when the Normans did it, it was largely because they wanted to know what they had just taken so they could better tax it. And taxes were certainly contemplated in the history of the men of Alba, as it does include estimates on the amount of tribute that was owed. And it also indicated which individuals and houses were to be collected from. Presumably, these were nobles who were responsible for gathering the material from their subjects and then, after taking their cut, providing it to the king. So it does give us a sense of how life was structured. But the really interesting part of the census is not the taxation, but rather it's its focus upon military matters. Because it's there that we learn that 28 oarsmen were required to be ready for service for every 20 houses in a region. So looking at the record, we see that Argyle alone was ready to field over a thousand men in over 70 ships. That is quite a fleet. And consider what we're looking at here. To the south, things were still being shaken out and there was a great deal of infighting going on. And in southern Scotland, we see that they were sufficiently organizing that they went large stretches of their history as a unified kingdom 
and they were even putting together censuses and impressively large fleets. What we're seeing here are the beginnings of Scotland. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, pretty much everything. And you can find links to all of that at the British History Podcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. All right. Pub quiz number eight the Scott Cast pub quiz. Let's do this. Question 1. In the 3rd century, what group in Britannia had a big enough fleet of well-built ships and skilled enough navigators to harry Roman vessels? Question 2. Which group was most often unified under a single ruler in the two centuries following the withdrawal of Rome? Was it A. The Welsh? B. The Anglo-Saxons? C. The Picts? Or D. None of them were unified? Question 3. How was the royal line in Pictland traced? Question 4. How did the Picts select their leaders? Question 5. According to legend, how long did Drust, son of Erp, rule? And how many battles did he fight? Question 6. Who converted Necton the Great while he was in exile? Question 7. What did Necton give to the Abbess of Kildare? Question 8. Who was credited with converting the Southern Picts? Question 9. Why was St. Columba eager to go on a mission? Question 10. St. Columba famously converted a Pictish king. Name that king. Question 11. St. Columba was involved with many wondrous matters, including even raising the dead. But one miracle stands out above all others. At one point, he turned back a sea monster. Name that sea monster. Question 12. What does Urian roughly translate to? Question 13. King Urien and his multi-kingdom army had cornered the Bernicians at Lindisfarne and laid siege. What event ended the siege? Question 14. True or false? When Northumbria exercised overlordship over Pickland, it involved a lot of fighting. And question 15. 400 years before the Doomsday Book was written, a similar census was compiled and it was focused upon Argyll. What was the name of that census? All right, I hope you have your answers written down and let's get going with the answers. Question one. In the third century, what group in Britannia had a big enough fleet of well-built ships and skilled enough navigators to harry Roman vessels? The Picts. Question 2. Which group was most often unified under a single ruler in the two centuries following the withdrawal of Rome? Was it A. The Welsh? B. The Anglo-Saxons? C. The Picts? Or D. None of them were unified? C. The Picts. Question 3. How was the royal line in Pictland traced? It was traced through the female line. 
question four. How did the Picts select their leaders? It looks like they did it through consensus. Question five. According to legend, how long did Drust, son of Erp, rule? And how many battles did he fight? He ruled 100 years, and he fought 100 battles. Question six. Who converted Necton the Great while he was in exile? St. Brigid. Question seven. What did Necton give to the Abbess of Kildare? He gave her a grant of five square kilometers of land for the construction of a monastery, which was to be held in perpetuity. So if you have something along the lines of a large grant of land, that's acceptable. Question eight. Who was credited with converting the Southern Picts? St. Ninian. Question nine. Why was St. Columba eager to go on a mission? He was under threat of excommunication due to his involvement in some rather deadly Irish politics. Question 10. St. Columba famously converted a Pictish king. Name that king. It was King Brood. I'll also accept King Bridie. Question 11. St. Columba was involved with many wondrous matters, including even raising the dead. But one miracle stands out above all others. At one point, he turned back a sea monster. Name that sea monster. Nessie. Question 12. What does Urian roughly translate to? Born of the city. Question 13. King Urian and his multi-kingdom army had cornered the Bernicians at Lindisfarne and laid siege. What event ended the siege? King Morgant of Godothan arranged for Urien to be assassinated, and then the army collapsed soon thereafter. Question 14. True or false? When Northumbria exercised overlordship over Pickland, it involved a lot of fighting. False. With the exception of the Battle of Degsistan, we just don't read about much conflict between Northumbria and Pickland. And question 15. 400 years before the Doomsday Book was written, a similar census was compiled and it was focused upon Argyle. What was the name of that census? The History of the Men of Alba. Okay, I hope you did well, and as always, thanks for listening.